Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hey, this is Kion Wolf. I'm here with Betsy Kaplan in your podcast feed saying thanks for tuning in, first of all. And please keep this podcast going by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to wnpr.org slash donate. That's the place where you become a member or you renew your membership. And most importantly, you keep us going. And we can't do this without you. Kion and I, along with the, the rest of our team, put on the Colin McEnroe Show every day of the week for you because we love to do this for you and we love the show as well. So give us a call, 1-800-584-2788 or go online at wnpr.org. Enjoy the show. So welcome to this show. Um, and well, let me just begin. I'll begin on a personal note. So like a lot of people my age right now, I'm a little confused uh, about where meaning is supposed to come from in my life. And I go through periods where I don't like the way I'm writing. I don't like the way I'm doing my radio show. I've stopped going to church. A lot of you know I was for a while going pretty religiously, you might say, to church. I have stopped doing that. And so it's kind of like... <sighs> Ah, you know, there's something missing, uh, and I don't know how to get it. And I'm halfway to jumping out of the plane, and there's nothing in my parachute. We're going to talk about that today with some people who have pursued the answers uh, in maybe less conventional settings or, or just realize that to some degree or other, people wind up having to make their own experiences of spiritual truth as opposed to waiting for them to be provided uh, or, or not. But anyway, let me tell you who's here. Uh, Mark Silk is here. Uh, he's no stranger to people who listen to our show. He's been out with us lots of times. Professor and director of the Leonard E. Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion in Public Life at Trinity College. Mark also writes the Spiritual Politics column at Religious News Service. Chris Grosso is a youth mental health facilitator at Newport Academy, the author of three books, most recently Dead Set on Living, uh, on making the difficult but beautiful journey from, I can't say that part, uh, effed up to waking up, published by Simon & Schuster. Uh, but I've also been reading his books, uh, books of the Indie Spiritualist and, and Everything Mind. Um, and he is going to be at the Mark Twain House tonight from 7 to 8.30 uh, and for a conversation with Mirabai Bush. And tickets can be purchased at marktwainhouse.org, part of the Mark My Words series. Yada, yada. Okay. So, but go see, go see this tonight. I think that we're going to whet your appetite uh, for this conversation. But Mark, I'm going to begin with you. You know, we've talked in the past, I think, about the so-called nuns. It used to be when we were talking about religion and nuns, we spelled it, spelled it N-U-N-S. Now it's N-O-N-E-S. It means a different thing. And, and it means, well, you should say what it means. It do, what it doesn't mean is that all of these people have abandoned all hope for spirituality. No, it really means... Uh those people who, when you ask them, what is your religion, if any, they say none. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it really is people who are, you know, who don't find any religion that they identify with. But that's not to say, as you uh, imply, uh, that they have no religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs. Uh, many of them believe in God or say they do. What they mean by God is a question we can explore. Um some of them even go to church or even belong, a few of them, uh, and have various beliefs associate, that we you know, traditionally have associated with, with religion. So there seems to be a problem that they have with institutional religion, um, 
And, and you know, a fair number of them are, are truly none. That is, they're atheists, they're agnostics, or they're, they're just indifferent to religion. But uh, a substantial number of them care. So, um, and, and Chris, for you, um, your journey, it's still going, I think, but uh, mm-hmm. it certainly uh, has been a story, and I, I don't know how we would even, I have to have you back and just do a whole show where we tell your story, <laughs> but, um, but it hasn't necessarily involved always traditional organized religion. Why didn't that work for you? You're obviously somebody with a real thirst for spiritual truth. Yeah, I honestly I feel like I was very fortunate growing up in a home where my parents did believe in God but did not force uh, church upon me. So many years later when I was about 24 and kind of stumbled onto the spiritual path, quite literally, I had a very open mind towards it. But prior to that, I was atheist. I did not know there was a difference between religion and spirituality. Uh, like a lot of people I meet still don't know that difference. Um, but I learned about that from a professor at college. Um, I was going there to work on a degree, and she gave me this book by Eckhart Tolle called The Power of Now, which is you know, a very, very famous book. This was back in, like again, 2004. And that started my journey. I remember reading the introduction, and by the time I finished that, I knew my life would never be the same. So, Mark, when we parse all this stuff gen- generationally, and so I should say a little bit more about, about Chris. Chris is, um, uh, in er- earlier in his life, he was very involved in the uh, hardcore punk scene. Uh, I, I don't have any examples of his music back in those days, <laughs> but it probably sounded a little bit like this. That's actually a minor threat. I picked it because I know Chris is a big fan. Absolutely. Um, and you're a heavily tattooed, pierced guy, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, and, and how old are you? Uh, turning 41 on June 3rd. Yeah. So, yeah. So I want to ask Mark a little bit more of a generational question because there are different waves coming along here and they have different expectations. And for example, you know, millennials, and Chris is kind of on the cusp here, you know, younger millennials may have different spiritual expectations or, or things that turn them off from spiritual uh, spiritual practice or, or for, from religion than different generations. Do we know much about how millennials are processing this whole question? Well, what we know is that that millennials are uh, of all the generations uh, that you know we sort of identify uh, pre-boomers, boomers, Gen X, and millennials. If we if we have the you know the sort of canonical four generations that we think about, um, the millennials millennials are least connected to religious institutions or religious identities, um, and and. You know, in some ways, that's not a huge surprise. Uh, young adults, uh, at you know, in their college age and uh, and in their twenties, um, have always been the least religiously connected. They're wandering around. They're finding themselves. They're they don't have families and children to raise, and so they tend to be disconnected. What's different now uh, is that uh, their immediate predecessors, the Gen X folks, um, are less involved with religious institutions than we would have expected. In fact, uh, they've checked out at a time when we would normally expect them to check in, and millennials even more. And why do we think that's happening? Do we have an idea? Well, there are a lot of, uh, there are various theories, um, and you know, you have to sort of do uh, close uh, interviews with people, and those then aren't, you know, whether they're entirely representative is enough open question, but I think there's been a general checking out of institutional connection, the sort of bowling alone 
idea that that uh, sociologist uh, Robert Putnam at Harvard uh, has expanded on. Um, there is clearly some uh, way in which young Americans have been turned off by uh, the religious right and and a tendency to associate organized religion, rightly or wrongly, since there's a religious left of sorts, but uh, there's the most press has gone to religious actors involved with politics who, who have values that uh, a lot of millennials don't share. Um, so those are two important reasons. And I think, uh, you know, there's living in the digital age where it's, you know, easier and more entertaining to go sit in front of a screen um, and then get yourself dressed and get out to church uh, on a Sunday morning, of course, you know, and look at a screen of somebody preaching. So, you know, Chris, in, in many ways, in most people's stereotypical ideas, you uh, playing hardcore punk and going through a lot of problems with drug addiction and, and rehab might seem an unlikely candidate for the life that you're living now, sure. which is one that's just imbued with spiritual pursuit and with spirituality. You're writing books about it. You're podcasting about it. You're, you're pretty much doing it 24-7. Yeah. So, so I don't know, maybe even wrapping in a little bit about what you just heard Mark said, talk yeah. a little bit about how where you how you got to where you are. Well, yeah, like I had mentioned, um, when I said I stumbled onto the path, I quite literally did. It was uh, through addiction that um, led me to a search for something more. I could even go back a little bit, and it's funny you played Minor Threat, because that, to me, was my first true spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. I just did not have the context to recognize it as such. Not but counting it was, the Van Halen solo. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> that is so right. Um, but yeah, so I mean, like that was the first time in my life I felt like something really cut through my heart, like to the core of my being. And again, didn't recognize it as spiritual, but today I do. And I still love that music and play it and listen to it. But that is essentially what got me onto the path. And I was living in Middletown at the time and Russell Library became my second home. And I was taking out books from any and every uh, author I could, more spiritual than religious, like Ram Dass, Pema Chodron, Thich Nhat Hanh, Thomas Merton, didn't matter the tradition. I was finding beauty in, in the majority of what I was taking out. And just a quick point to, to what Mark was saying about um, people, especially the younger generation, having issues now. Um, it, absolutely. And par I think a big part of what I have found, I've been doing this for only five years, so Mark has more experience than I do for sure. But you know, having traveled the country many times over, speaking at big conferences and festivals and all of that, one of the recurring themes I see is that it's twofold. One, the dogma that comes with a lot of religion turns a lot of people off. And that's not to say there's anything wrong with it. I know people that are religious and it's very beneficial. But also when it comes to spirituality, a lot of it is offered in a very watered down, love and light, um, you know, Pollyanna-ish way which is also a turnoff. So um, I think people are looking for something raw and real, and I'm in no way the only one out here doing what <laughs> I am doing, but I am trying to offer what I can to people to, you know, because spirituality saved my life. And uh, and I know a lot of other people where it's done the same. I think one thing that might surprise people, Chris, uh, people, I think, particularly if they're brought up in a Judeo-Christian tradition, sure. um, they think, oh, well, yeah, so somebody like Chris, he can go and he can go in, uh, and, and explore something else like like Buddhism uh, and find total acceptance there. And, and you've written in a couple of places that every single religion has its narrow-minded moments and its narrow-minded people, and that 
you know, even when pictures of you went up, I think on the Facebook pages of Ram Das and yeah. Tara, Tara Brock, who's yeah. this uh, kind of, I don't know, you can describe her better than I can. There were people going, no way is that dude <laughs> some kind of spiritual seeker, right? Yeah. Because just because of how you looked. Exactly. And, and that's kind of the... That I've had to learn because I've had to grow a thick skin being an author and a mm. podcaster and a public speaker. That's their problem, not mine. And mm. my podcast is on Ram Dass's network, and he is my teacher. And for him to give hit literally his blessing to my work and um, to have me on his network, that in and of itself, because I'll be honest, sometimes I still wonder, what am I doing? Like, how did I end up here? Uh, it's hard for me. It's very surreal to you know to wrap my head around it. But I just trust in the fact that I have three books out and I keep getting these invitations to speak. So it's meant to happen. But yes, to this day, uh, they're not all the time. But people will literally just look at me, and that shows their closed mindedness. And that's not just religious people. That's also quote unquote spiritual curmudgeons mm-hmm. as well. So. Uh, also, I don't know if it's changed since the first book, but you wouldn't do yoga, which is also another. Uh, <laughs> I've actually changed a little bit. Softened I've a little st- on that. Yeah. Softened up uh, yeah. over the last few minutes. Uh, last few months. Over the last few minutes, that's fine too. You like the <laughs> a life, little of you're, you're being here now. <laughs> that's like right. Now, that's all right. right. You know what? Let's take a quick break here, so we will have a little bit more time uh, here on the other side. I want to talk a little bit about? Uh, well, we'll we'll see what we talk about on the other side. That's what we'll do. God is in the Hindu way, Jai Bhagwan, Namaste. God is in those dancing pagans, each drop of perspiration. God is in the Wiccan coven, 12 plus 1 equals 12. Hey, it's Kion Wolf here with Betsy Kaplan taking a second out of your podcast. I know you thought you were totally off the hook from listening to the live fundraising, but we just want to take a second to say thanks for tuning in and also please Help us keep this coming into your podcast feed. The number to call to be a member or renew your membership is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. And you have lots of advantages listening to the show on podcast because we're only going to speak to you for about 20 (laughs) seconds, maybe 50 seconds, Mm -hmm. unlike five minutes. So reward us with the fact that we're (laughs) speaking to you less time. We're taking less time out of your enjoyment of this great show that you're listening to. Give us some support to keep these shows going, no matter how you listen to them. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. That's it! Quiet, Lisa. Everyone in the store is looking at you. They should take a good look at themselves and what their church has become. (gasps) Lisa, it's still the same basic message. We've just dressed it up a little. Like the Whore of Babylon? (gasps) That is a false analogy. No, it's not. It's apt. Apt! (gasps) Don't you see what Mr. Burns has done to this church? He restored it from nave to narthex. He supersized the pews for the Zaftig believers. He put ice in the urinals. Those are all wonderful things, but they've cost the church its soul. And I, for one, will not be a part of it. All right, so that's Lisa Simpson voicing her dissatisfaction with the materialism of the church. Our guests in studio with me right now are Mark Silicon, Chris Grosso, Grosso who look at this from kind of different different perspectives. But um, so, Mark... Um, Lisa is, I think, speaking for a lot of young people and probably a lot of people of all ages when she says she rejects the materialism of the church. I've certainly heard that a lot. In addition to the sex abuse scandals of the Catholic Church, which you mentioned in the A segment and the 
frequent intolerant statements that come from certain conservative churches. I think materialism might be number three uh, on the list of, of turnoffs. On the other hand, I just watched the entire world cry buckets over Notre Dame. You know, so we're not totally opposed to the material, physical expression of religion, right? No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, there are these incredibly powerful symbols, physical manifestations of, of, uh, uh, of spirit, you know, that have spiritual force. And, and some of them are man-made and others are uh, natural. You know, you have uh, uh, the Cathedral of Mosses out in, in you know, in the, in the Pacific Northwest. And, and you know, I, I don't think there's anything uh, really wrong with that. I mean, there have been, you know, after, after the, the horrible a uh, fire happened at Notre Dame. There were various people who said, and you know, to each other and to themselves, you know, we can raise all this money. We're all all upset about this building, but how come we don't give to the poor? Um, you know, Jesus himself <laughs> talked about how the poor will always be with you. Um, y- you know, there is something just awe-inspiring about the physical world, whether man-made or natural, um, and uh, you know. We're physical beings. Yeah, we're spirits in the material world, Chris. So whether it's the grandeur of Notre Dame or you struggling over as you prepare to head up to Kripalu to play drums at a kirtan, whether you're going to wear suede sauconies or canvas (laughs) vans, because the sauconies might bug some of the people, you know, because there's an animal product in there somewhere. We can't really ever get out of the physical world. No, absolutely. And that was still very much part of it. And and that's why I try to throw myself under the bus as much as I can, because I just use my myself as a test uh, subject in my books, but that was very much a part of my spiritual materialistic uh, phase and still like worrying about things like that. And at the end of the day, to me, what spirituality has meant, has come to mean, at least for today, is that peeling away instead of caring about the outside. I stepped onto the path and just, I was still punk and hardcore and loved underground hip hop, but I was now a spiritual person and I was spiritualizing my ego rather than really peeling away those layers and going deeper and uh, and meditating and, and using, you know, visions of Christ or Buddha or Kali, which I, I very much do. So uh, I am in no way, I'm only anti-religious in the sense of when it gets in the way, when people are closed-minded, when wars are fought, when bombings happen. But other than that, I look at the mystic core elements of each of these great wisdom traditions, and I think there's so much beauty there and so much inspiration, but it's hard to sift through and get to that point. So, uh, Mark, uh, it's probably worth noting that the history of Americans uh, and their relationship to organized religion is the history of rejection. That rejection of religion didn't start now. I mean, all all, all those new American religions that came into being towards the end of the 19th century, whether it's Christian science or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism uh, or Seventh-day Adventism, I mean, these are essentially rejections of some prior orthodoxy that we've been kind of a spiritually restless nation pretty much from the get-go. Yeah, I mean, one of the terms that uh, that we use for that is uh, come outerism. Uh, I came out of this, and I came out of that, and uh, and it's you know earlier than the late nineteenth century. I mean, oh, go yeah. back to Emerson and a kind of nature. You know, transcendentalism is uh, an Eastern influenced, uh, you know, Native American uh, influenced uh, way to think about the world. Um, and you know, you have these communities that that live in various places in the antebellum period. So. 
And then, of course, there are huge enthusiasms for things like um, spiritualism, spirit rapping, uh, mediumship. Uh, these become very popular in the 19th century, and um, as well as Mary Baker Eddy, faith healing. So, so this is a this is a kind of spiritual uh, carnival uh, that that that's been the case in America for for a long, long time. So, but some of the, one of the inherent bargains in that, Chris, is ultimately a lot of these religions come down to pick one, you know. Actually, Mark and I, I think, are both out of similar experience, and I think you've probably had your own version of this, but as journalists covering religion, mm-hmm. I was a journalist, my job exclusively for, for a while was to cover right. religion. Mark's done a lot more of it. But one day I would be talking to a Hare Krishna devotee, and the next day to somebody like an elder in the Mormon church, and the next day, you know, to a Pentecostal minister. And all of these people believed what they believed very profoundly, and mm-hmm. some of it was mutually exclusive from 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 the other stuff and it was dizzying like yes. it, i mean it made me kind of just want to step back and say i can't handle this but you seem to be able to move around a little bit among certain religious disciplines and kind of take what you like yeah absolutely i personally i have friends that are my best friend in the whole world born again christian uh, my fiance has her own view she wouldn't call herself anything i have Friends literally from everything from Buddhism to Hinduism, Sufism, satanic friends. And again, as long as they're not harming anyone else, who am I to judge? Um, But yeah, I for me, there's two schools of thought that I've heard on this. And one is it is best to pick one tradition and go with that Hmm. because, you know, you have a shovel and you're just digging deeper and deeper and deeper. But then a lot of the people that kind of fall in line with my belief is that you have multiple shovels and you're digging at a faster rate if you're using various practices from different traditions. Not one thing always fits another. So in no way do I ever say one is right and the other is wrong. I just simply say this is what has worked very well for me for many years. And uh, I've also been a very diverse person since childhood. So I, I am not the type of person that can just pick one thing and go with it. My bookshelves are littered with, again, um, Everything. I, I'm glad that Mark had mentioned the transcendentalists because it was uh, Thoreau who turned me on to the Vedas and the Upanishads, some of the uh, most ancient spiritual literature from the Hindu tradition. And from again, from you know, just learning and digging, and uh, just I'm a very inquisitive person, and that serves me well on my spiritual journey. Actually, Emerson's uh, Harvard uh, Com- Divinity School commencement address essentially got him thrown out of Unitarian Universalism, which is really hard to do. You know, it's hard to piss <laughs> off doctrinally universalists, but he was too much for them. He, he went too far. So, you know, I mean, Mark, and I, I want to really hear from both of you on this, but, you know, one thing that, do, that does happen in America, I was teasing Chris a little bit about yoga, but, you know, there are an awful lot of people, I, I, I was deep into yoga for about five years, and when I would look around the class, I would often think half of the people don't even really understand that some of the words, the Sanskrit words that they're saying are essentially spiritual professions, you know, that, that they're they're participating in an act of spirituality. And then th- some other portion of the class, although they really don't understand it all <laughs> well, are thinking, this is where I get my spiritual sustenance. But they just sort of get it because the teacher's saying it, too. And, uh, you know, there's, I think, a lot of that, you know, that that notion that we can, I don't know, be tourists somewhere. I, I, don't, I don't even know what I expect you to say in response to that, but I know you'll have a response. Well, I, I think it's an interesting point to, to th- that really um, the degree to which various uh, practices, yoga is the most 
self-evident one, but other kinds of mindfulness exercises uh, have their roots in a religious tradition mm -hmm. um, and have made their way into American society uh, in ways that people don't understand them religiously. Now, there are some people who not only understand them religiously but object to them religiously. <laughs> a a, 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 a co-editor of mine, a colleague, uh, Candy Brown, who's at uh, Indiana, uh, has just written a book kind of criticizing all of this and claiming that uh, I mean she's she's uh, an evangelical and 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 she sees this as a sort of uh, establishment of religion when you start having kids doing yoga in public schools I mean I'm sort of agnostic on those issues you know but but it's certainly the case that and one of the hard things about getting one's arms around this kind of uh, spiritual practice is that it has leaked into all kinds of uh, activities that people don't themselves recognize as, as religious. Uh, it's very extensive. It's often, as Chris says, um, you know, somewhat light and denatured. Right. I don't know. Just go ahead. Yeah, well, um, I am not agnostic on that point because I spent 15 years working with youth, and I still do um, work with youth uh, very closely. And I think things like mindfulness and yoga are extremely beneficial, especially at such a young age. And I know down in the Bible Belt, particularly, it's it's very much frowned upon, mm -hmm. and you know it's uh, related to satanic things, and you know people that just unfortunately don't understand necessarily the actual roots. And since it's not traditionally Christian, then it's inherently evil, and that couldn't be further from the truth. The one thing that I often come back to is I had interviewed um, a wonderful couple, Stephen Levine and Andrea Levine. Stephen has since passed on; Andrea is still with us. Um, and I remember in that interview, they said something to the effect of, could you imagine if in every classroom starting around third grade, we had a compassion class taught? You know, we're taught math, we're taught this or that. And that really struck a chord with me. And then, you know, I've talked about that and people say, well, that's what's supposed to be taught at home. But I've worked in, and I don't like this term, but for lack of better words, at risk, you know, schools, I've worked in these areas. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, more of the time than not, those things aren't taught at home. So I think there, that could be a preliminary shift for the nature of the whole world. Mm. Uh, but if we're speaking about Western culture, I think that'd be wonderful. Although I want to follow up on that. Sure. We only got about a minute and a half yep. left, so we have to make this pretty brief. But, you know, I do think, like, I don't know, Mark and I are getting to an age where people say, well, you know, you want to work on your balance. So you don't fall over, you old geezer. <laughs> uh, you better start taking Tai Chi. Sure. So and we go, OK. Um, but, I mean, we think that we can do that without participating in what is essentially a spiritual practice with some fairly abstract and non-secular non concepts attached to it. Yeah. And I don't know. Is, are we deluding ourselves or are, are we cheating ourselves out of the spiritual part I, of either? I, okay? I don't think so at all. I know we're short on time, but I think yoga, I think Tai Chi, I think any of that can be done because it is beneficial to our well-being. Uh, mindfulness, meditation, for example, there's nothing, not, excuse me, nothing inherently religious about our breath. No tradition owns it. So that's why I think meditation, though it, it comes from the East, it is not necessarily a Buddhist or Hindu practice. It is a practice of breath, yeah. period. So I don't think you have to attach these things to it. Someone might say that's cultural appropriation. Um, that's up to them. But no, I personally don't don't think that's a disservice at all if it's helping you in your health, and then you get to go on and do these great shows and help other people. So <laughs> it's all good to me. 
So anyway, talk about culture, cultural appropriation. They took over breath, you know? <laughs> it was like the Christians never thought of that. Like breath, wow, we should have we should have emphasized breath more. Then we'd right. actually have kind of a franchise there. All right, we're going to have more of uh, Mark and Chris after this. There's a quick break coming up here. As you know, we are in the middle of a pledge drive. If you like a conversation like the one that we're having, uh, please think about supporting our, don't just think about supporting our show, support our show with a phone call to 860-27, no, that's the wrong one, 1-800-584-2788. I can't believe I flubbed that number. I know that number in my sleep. 1-800-584-2788. Or you can go online at wnpr.org and see all the gifts that we have. But really nice people who are less incoherent than me are now going to explain to you why you should do this. You should pay attention to what they say. And I'll be so grateful if you do support what we do. And we're back. And so usually Kion Wolf would be reading uh, some credits here, but I forgot to write them. Um, so uh, I should say that Kion Wolf is on the board making everything sound good and not getting mad when I change the plan every 15 seconds. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, our, our senior producer, is the person who assembled this fine show and found all these terrific guests for us. And who are these terrific guests, you might ask, if you are just tuning in? Well, in studio with me uh, are Mark Silk, professor and director of the Leonard Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life at Trinity College. Mark also writes the Spiritual Politics column at Religion News Service, uh, and Chris Grosso, uh, who is a youth mental health facilitator at Newport Academy and the author of three books, most recently, Dead Set on Living, on making the beautiful, the difficult but beautiful journey from effing up to waking up. There, I did it better this time, published by Simon & Schuster. Now joining us by phone is Tony Carnes, editor and publisher of A Journey Through NYC Religions, uh, and he has been exploring, well, I should let him say what he's doing. So, Tony, this is a pretty fascinating project that you've undertaken there in the five bureaus, boroughs of New York City. Uh, well, thank you for having me on, Colin. I hear you're a guy with serious fun, so I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. Okay. Um, the, um, yes, I, we go down every street, uh, 4,600 miles a street, and we stop at every religious site and talk to people and do some photographs, and, um, and you really see some quite amazing things. You see uh, church cafes up, opening up, uh, and then uh, maybe opened up by Hindus in a neighborhood, and then uh, they invite the evangelical Christians to hold their uh, sort of um, uh, night gathering for the uh, young adults uh, 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 in their cafe. And so you see these mixes and matches. Uh, you see a, a pastor uh, giving a Bible study in a mosque, and an imam uh, uh, talking with uh, uh, and holding uh, meetings with uh, rabbis. And so this mix and match is somewhat, um, it's exhilarating, it's innovative, it's, uh, uh, but I will say going down the street and stopping at each place and seeing the, the energy uh, of the people that are uh, the believers that we stop with, and they're all types, is just um, something that's it's life-changing because you you see this uh, energy in the city that largely goes maybe unnoticed, uh, but not unnoticed in their networks, and it's just it's a wonderful thing to do. I recommend anybody just to step out their house and uh, walk down the street and stop at every religious site and go in and talk to them. Um, the uh, I'm going to have you give you gave some some general examples there, but I'll, I'll have you get specific. Uh, a cafe called Panorama of My Silence. Can you tell us about that one? Oh, that's right. Well, that 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 cafe is in an uh, area on the eastern part of New York City, uh, in, in a little 
area called Briarwood, which is just beyond um, uh, uh, Forest Hills, but not quite to Jamaica, Queens. And a, a group of Hindus decided they would come into a neighborhood uh, and, and live in uh, this neighborhood of Briarwood, and they set up some cafes and some other uh, places in an in a, uh, auditorium. But the cafe is Panorama of My Silence Heart. And um, it's a wonderful cafe. Uh, it opens up on uh, they, a, a group, an evangelical Christian group called Oasis, which uh, is basically a sort of a, a place where singles come to meet, meet each other uh, to see if they want to date or something like that while they're going to church. Um, they need a place to meet, and so uh, the, uh, the panorama of my silent heart said, well, why don't you come and and meet with us, and they did for a while. And it's they 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 have, of course, they have um, a low key uh, sort of invitation to uh, their faith on the walls, and uh, they are all followers of one particular 1960s uh, famous guru named Sri Chamoy. Oh yeah. And in fact, uh, I I walked by and it was uh, writing uh, for our. Uh, online magazine, and um, I uh, people were saying, "Do you want to go to?" Um, this was some time ago, and uh, they have. It turns out in that little neighborhood, they uh, have a, sort of hidden away a very big sort of um, not a stadium uh, auditorium, but uh, a small uh, a place where it has uh, people can sit all around. And they were re- remembering Shreech Moy's um, passing. And and there was quite a few people. I'd say there were several thousand people. We should say uh, Sri Chinmoy to those people who are not maybe familiar with him. One way you might have noticed him or known of him, he was very influential with Carlos Santana uh, and I think John McLaughlin. So we'll just do Chris's job and uh, work in a little uh, rock music here to this. I, I want to just take a moment and just turn to my guest uh, in studio here, Tony, for just a second and just say, Mark, this is, so we have, we have a cafe here. Sounds like that we've got um, a Hindu neighborhood, but some Buddhism going on and a Christian evangelical singles group group coming in here. So this is sort of right in your wheelhouse, right? This is sort of American demographics uh, combining with American polyspirituality. I think that's true with a, with a strong element of, of New York City ethno-religious uh, community. Um, one of the things about New York especially, but, but, but really uh, the middle Atlantic states, is that people are in tribes, and they understand that tribes are uh, sort of separate places, but that they can get along. And so when you want to call out uh, different tribes and, and uh, you know, the, they sort of accept each other. It's, a, it's the long history of the Middle Atlantic states. Uh, New York is continuing that tradition with these different, different groups who sort of bump up against each other and actually, uh, you know, for the most part, get along pretty well. I'm not astonished at this, but it's, it's great to hear. Chris, it sounds to me like Panorama of My Silence is a Chris Grosso place if I've ever heard of, heard of one. You you should do a live podcast from there. I would love to. I think that that's wonderful when you have this celebration of diversity and uh, so much available in such a, a small area. Um, I think that's wonderful. I've spent many years visiting various temples, mosques, churches, um, and learned a lot from them. My only thing is that I find most of them want to kind of recruit you mm-hmm. and I'm not looking to be recruited. I you know, 
God bless or <laughs> bows or namaste, whatever it is, you know, that is uh, apropos for wherever I'm visiting. But um, that's the one reason I, this day and age, kind of don't go into more formal settings. But uh, like I've said, right along, teach their own, whatever works. I have to mention one more thing before I go back to Tony. Uh, first, first, first of all, I have to show off and say I actually actually met uh, Sri Chinmoy at one point. And one of the reasons I was able to meet him was at that point he had two Bodyguards, I guess, might be overstating it, but kind of, they were kind of bodyguards, and they were the Hogan brothers who played football at Northwest Catholic uh, in West Hartford. So everything comes back to West Hartford, Connecticut, eventually. So, <laughs> Tony, you know, to Chris's point, I- I'm also wondering: Are you always received happily when you go poking your nose into these religious places? Do people want to proselytize to you? Do they want you to go away? Uh, h- how does it how does it work when you start asking questions? Well, uh, most of the time, yes. Uh, we work very hard to uh, uh, practice sort of empathy and sympathy for people we're talking to, and uh, people can pick that up because uh, they don't. We just we just show up, mm-hmm. uh, and but they we've learned how to communicate to them that we really and or uh, uh, really care about that they have some story there, some story the rest of us, even though we may not be believers like them that the rest of us could really learn from, like how to run a cafe that's beautiful and not so intrusive but uh, welcoming. And uh, uh, we have had a, a, a small uh, number. Uh, uh, we had some, um, uh, but usually it's not the religious people. It's uh, other people uh, surrounding the neighborhood uh, that uh, we one time got stopped by some rogue uh, counter-terrorist agents in Brooklyn, and uh, uh, they were uh, not uh, too friendly. Um, but they turned out to be rogue and eventually got uh, uh, arrested themselves. But uh, we, uh, most of the time it's just incredible. Um, and we do get proselytized. We tell our, our reporters that, uh, you know, uh, that means they want to talk to you. And so you'll find out, you know, lots about their personal life and their testimony and their how this changed the life. I, I know, um, you know, Chris uh, himself has got a, quite a story that he shares with people, and it's intrinsically very interesting, and it's inspirational. And even if uh, uh, he may have, uh, uh, you know, he uh, has a path that follows Ram Dass, and this is a, maybe not a path that everybody follows, but you know what? All of us can learn from that, and some of the things he does, we can just learn a lot of things for our own life. So I'm really uh, grateful for that. I, I remember uh, uh, one time stopping at a Korean church in uh, uh, Reverend Cho in uh, Flushing, and uh, he had an armload of wood. I said, what are you doing with an armload of wood? He says, well, I'm going out, and we've chopped down this tree, and we're giving firewood to our neighbors. And I said, well, is that part of your duty as a pastor, of chopping trees and giving out firewood? And he said, well, you know, I get firewood because uh, we've got it, and uh, people in New York are always looking for some firewood. Uh, it's expensive. And then I invite them. We have a, a tea house, and they can come and have tea. And, you know, and I, I assume that there he might, uh, you know, pitch his uh, faith in Jesus and uh, his church. But he was uh, just a welcoming, opening guy, and um, his, his myth is going in the, in the neighborhood with uh, armloads of firewood. 
and opening doors that way. Chop chop wood, carry water. It's very Buddhist. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so so I want to you know just uh, once again circle around uh, in the studio here. So Chris, as he's talking saying about saying this, I'm also thinking of a quote that uh, you've used in the pl- past from Thich Nhat Hanh, which is back to the idea of breathing. That idea of you can do it better than I can, but that I, I have arrived and I, I am home oh, thing. Yeah. Talk a little bit about this because we're always looking for a place, right. the the next place, the right place, but maybe we're actually looking too far outside our own selves. Right. I mean, we have to plan for the future, of course. That's just part of human nature. But i that's one of many uh, quotes from Thich Nhat Hanh. I love part of why I love him is his work is so accessible. One need not be Buddhist to benefit from it. But that um, and No Mud, No Lotus, of course, is another one he's often. But I have arrived. I am home. So that practice essentially is when you breathe in, you just mentally say to yourself, I have arrived. And as you breathe out, I am home. And that's just another form of mindfulness. And what he says by that is we are always at home, not literally the home we go to bed at, but we are always at home if we are here in the moment, not thinking about the future, the anxiety that comes along with the bills that need to be paid or what we need to do later, not stuck in the past and any of the guilt and shame that comes along with things we've done that we may regret. But we are here right now in this moment and we have arrived. We are home. And it's it, that's what I love is it sounds too easy, and, <laughs> but it works. It It is that easy. It's another just a very simple breath practice. And and that way you are home wherever you are. Um, you're there. You've arrived. And Mark, you know, as I as I look at Tony's site and I see all this stuff here, I am once again reminded this is a very spiritual kind con- uh, country, or or maybe it's a, a country that enjoys being surrounded by different kinds of spirituality. I mean, we all are um, entranced by the Dalai Lama without necessarily being Tibetan Buddhists. I think it's true, and I think in his own way, the Dalai Lama is kind of entranced with us, or at least, uh, you know, his concept of secular ethics is really a way of applying uh, some Tibetan Buddhist mindfulness practices to. Uh, to all people, and and you know the the idea of e pluribus unum, uh, think thought of spiritually is is sort of embedded in the country. Um, Tony, do you, have you kept count? Do you know how many re- religious places? And this obviously, obviously, as we've made clear, involves cafes and all kinds of and people who are knitting, but spiritually, how, how many do you ha- know? How many are in your index at this point? Well, we have uh, between eight and nine thousand are index. Mm. But I suspect there's probably 11,000 spiritual places in New York. Wow. And, you know, I, I've got to thank you guys in Connecticut. Y'all sent us Frederick Law Olmsted, <laughs> uh, who created— many people don't realize that Central Park is, was originally created out of Olmsted as a spiritual expression. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was influenced by the Connecticut uh, theologian Horace Bushnell, who mm-hmm. talked about— you. Find God to the unconscious influence of people around you and the, and the nature creation, he would call it, around you. And if you set it up right, people just know there's something more. And so when Olmsted came from Connecticut and eventually got here, he, he, he wanted to bring people to this unconscious influence about uh, that there is peace beyond, they, they, as Chris said, there's peace beyond, there, you can be home wherever you're at. Tony, I'm so glad that you mentioned Olmsted, uh, and I'm so grateful that you mentioned Olmsted. But uh, I have to stop here because we're actually really out of time. Uh, Tony Carnes' site is called A Journey Through NYC Religions. Thanks to Mark Silk from Trinity. Chris Grosso, Grosso is going to be at uh, the Mark Twain House tonight. 
Boris Bushnell will not be there, uh, but Chris will, uh, in conversation with Mirabai Bush, starting at 7 p.m., either show up there or get your tickets in advance. Thanks to all of our wonderful guests.